0: What is up, y'all? This is Connie Morgan with the Free Black Thought Podcast, and I really feel like saying, y'all, after this interview, you are about to get a heavy dose of Southern drawl with my guest, Jason Littlefield, who brings two decades of experience as an educator to his role as Executive Director of Empowered Pathways and as a designer of Empowered Humanity Theory, a humanity-centered framework for life, leadership, and learning his book, Empowered Humanity Theory, a Framework for an Empowering and Dignified Life, is now available on Amazon. And of course, Jason is my friend and a co-founding member of Free Black Thought, because remember, there is no such thing as the Black perspective. Just Black people with perspectives. The number
1: you have dialed.
0: Black Thought Podcast. You are a founder, co-founder of FBT. And so it's been a long time coming to have you come on. We're going to talk about your book. We're going to talk about DEI, SEL, all these things. But first, can you please educate me and our audience on your early background? I mean, how did you grow up? Where were you raised? What was that like? And how did that help mold you into who you are today?
1: Oh, goodness. Uh, I appreciate you asking because those formative years uh, have definitely Profoundly impacted me. I was raised in East Texas and you can probably hear that in my voice. (laughs) Uh, I particular in a town called Nacogdoches. Uh, Nacogdoches is a small town about 30,000 people. I also spent time in Longview and I actually graduated from Pine Tree High School in Longview, Texas. Uh, But my childhood, Nacogdoches was a very interesting town. It was a small town, small East Texas town, but yet there was a university. So there was always a variety and a mix of people. Mm. And it was a very integrated, uh, quote unquote, diverse town. And my friendships have been with. Black people, Hispanic people, white people, my best friend growing up was a japanese American, so I grew up in the church as well, so I grew up singing, "Jesus loved the little children of the world and red, mm-hmm. yellow, black, and white and that was that was how I was raised, and that was how I approached the world and my friendships and i I have a distinct memory that, wow, this is the first generation that we weren't like them, that we weren't like the the bad adults before us, uh, because it was the, the first integrated uh, generation. I started kindergarten in 1980, so, you know, freshly removed from civil rights. And, of course, there's real-life racism in East Texas. You know, I got to see what real life racism looks like and how awful it is. And I just had this pride of many of my deep, personal, close friendships growing up were with people of all different races. And we all embraced that together.
0: Jason, was anybody like in your home or in, or in maybe through your church or whatever teaching you like, hey, we need to respect other than singing songs that inherently say Jesus loves all the children. Uh, did, was anybody actually trying to teach you, hey, we love everybody no matter what their skin color is, no matter what their background? Or did that just come naturally because you were integrated? And so you weren't? You, it didn't even cross your mind that any other way of living could exist?
1: My parents intentionally taught me and I used them as role models. Of, and I remember my father My grandfather passed away in 1965, uh, 10 years before I was born. But I remember uh, my father telling me that uh, his funeral was full of black people and white people because he was so close to all of his community. And that was a rare, that was a real rare thing in a tiny East Texas town in 1965, so I just kind of, maybe some sense of pride and like, yeah, we're, we've always been a, there's a tradition of being a, just a, I guess a good, decent human in my family. And I'm glad to continue that uh, Mm -hmm. way of doing things. So that was just kind of my natural way of growing up and, Interacting with others um, as a child, as a teenager, and even as an adult.
0: Did those friendships continue? Or, I guess, so in elementary school at a very young age, you had these diverse friendships. What did that look like as you moved through middle school, high school, and so on?
1: As I moved through middle and high school, a lot of them became even closer, and I think that that's because athletics was involved. Mm. So just going through that you know, really strenuous and close-knit process together, because athletics <clears throat> it creates an environment where people really can connect strongly with each other. So I think that those relationships through form through sport uh, really help solidify some of those relationships.
0: And uh, so what did you, when you were finishing up high school, what did you know is next? Or what, I you're obviously, you're in education now. Did you know that at a young age, that's what you wanted to do? What were you looking at as you were graduating from high school?
1: I figured that I would go into education. Uh, in fact, my undergrad years, I worked at a daycare center being the after school program director and four years after that I decided that uh, secondary education was probably going to be best for me Uh, but I fought it you know all along I was like I'm not going to be a teacher I'm going to go do something else and my first my first job out of college was living in the woods and being a counselor at a therapeutic wilderness camp. So I spent essentially 5 days in living in the woods with what they called at the time emotionally disturbed teenage boys.
0: What does that mean? You got to you got to give me a little like these are kids that are in the juvie system?
1: Uh well it's kind of one step before the juvie system it was a therapeutic wilderness camp so it wasn't it wasn't a punishment like a harsh military camp um mm-hmm. but it was one where we lived and talked about the natural consequences of our behavior and the necessity for managing oneself accordingly uh and learning how to get along and cooperate accordingly these were kids that were Kicked out of their house, if you will. Uh, sometimes the law enforcement was involved. A lot of times, school system was involved. So, just was a wave. Was for, it a diverse
0: group of boys, or was there a trend ethnically?
1: It was mostly white. Okay. My memory, now that you asked that question, I'm thinking it was mostly white, but we. So my group, we only had maybe nine campers Mm -hmm. at a time. There were three boys groups and three girls groups and each group had about nine at a time. And the average stay was about eight months. So it wasn't like there was a, a lot of just a constant cycling through of people. They were, they were there for a while. So, you know, you, you learn a lot about yourself uh, living in the elements with, you know, primitive elements, trying to take care of and help change some of these young people for the path that they were going, going down. So that was my first job out of college. And after that, I worked in, I moved to Taiwan for a little bit less than a year. And I ended up uh, teaching English uh, while I was there and came back in two thousand and began teaching and I taught for three years as the social studies teacher at a six through twelve alternative school program that was again of one step before the juvenile justice program and that was in the Houston area and after that I moved to Fort Worth where I coached and I coached football baseball and powerlifting and I was a history teacher from 2003 to 2009 then I was an assistant principal at another high school in Fort Worth from 2009 to 2012, and, and those then, and, that, and
0: the, that high school was uh, was not any kind of that was just a your standard high school. It wasn't any sort of alternative program. Oh
1: no! So this uh, the school that I taught and coached at was it was a a quote unquote magnet school. It was. Uh, Trimble Technical High School, which is in Fort Worth, and students apply to get in based off of their interest, you know, academic record, behavioral record. It wasn't, now, it wasn't a perfect uh school. It had its, you know, it's still a, a, a city high school in Fort Worth, so there were some problems, but man, it was, it was wonderful. It was Mm. a, and the students would graduate with a certificate, you know, some sort of trade, uh, plumbing, welding, Cosmo, woodworking, auto mechanics. It it was a, a wonderful school. I had a wonderful time there and my experience with the students and staff at that place also really uh, had a, profound impact on me and as far as was that a diverse group or or not it was i believe one percent or less than one percent white uh at at that school so very very quote unquote diverse and However, whatever that word, those words are people use.
0: Right. I mean, it's interesting because actually it sounds like your least diverse experience was when you were at that camp and it was mostly white kids, Mm -hmm. but it was, you could, but it wasn't a good thing. Right. Like this wasn't (laughs) this, like you said, this was kind of the step before getting, going to juvie or whatever. So, um, these were the, the bad kids I'm using, people won't be able to see, but I'm using square, scare quotes that you were working with. That was the least diverse group. And as you moved through and you taught it in a more, as your journey led you to kind of a more elite, I guess I would say, institution, there weren't white, there wasn't very many white kids.
1: Right, right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, that's a good point. And I'm, that's, I'm that's, that's very interesting.
0: Talking about how your, you know, how your experiences, you know, form your viewpoints when all of a sudden this the idea of black people are victims or minorities are victims and white people hold all the power, you know directly from your own experience, like, hey, I've seen kids of all different backgrounds doing well and doing poorly. And in fact, just anecdotally on your based on your experience, the narrative that you could you could, I'm not saying you do this, but the narrative you could write in your own head is that it's the other way around, <laughs> just based on your own experience. Like, hey, these elite kids I worked with were black and the messed up kids I worked with were white. So I my life experience is totally different than what you're being fed, which probably equipped you to better call out the lies. But I want to rewind a little bit. You said you were hesitant to go into education. You're like, no, 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 I'm not going to be a teacher. Why was that?
1: Because I wanted to get, I wanted to make money. <laughs> I thought i was gonna I thought I was gonna I was like i'm gonna try to go make money and then i I did that for a little bit I took a business job for and some other and I was like yeah this I'm really supposed to be uh in education so is that why finally, you finally I succumbed to my calling i guess
0: okay, and is that why you moved to up to administrative roles? Like, cause you were like, okay, I'm in education. I've done the teaching thing, but I'm going to pursue being a principal or maybe even a superintendent one day to make more money. Or is that because you thought you could do the most good moving up the chain in that way?
1: I wanted to make the most impact.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so I did go back and get my master's uh, in 2007 or 2008 so i could get an administrative job and and i did and i was part of a wonderful administrative team and we were we were brought into a quote unquote struggling campus you know a campus that hadn't made test scores in forever um uh, gang fights
0: mm-hmm.
1: all the time so it was part of an effort where the state was putting more money and putting more effort and putting more expectations on it so that it could stay open rather than get shut down. And after three years of transforming that, completely transforming that campus, I then realized there's only so much one person can do And so much that is limited to assistant principals. And then there's only so much that is limited to the principals. Mm -hmm. And that was in 2012. And that was also at a time in my life where I I just needed, I needed change. Uh, I saw the impending culture that we're all facing now and, I made the decision to withdraw and from the whole from the whole system and I moved overseas where I thought I would just kind of focus on my family and my immediate uh environment just really cultivate that immediate environment and tune everything else out. So I ended up in China and then they ended up not granting me the proper visas. What were you they... trying to
0: do in China? Like, what was your job?
1: Uh, I was the director of an international school, of a K-12 uh, international international school. My, my children uh, went there, and my now ex-wife uh, worked there. So it was just a situation where we were kind of just all together.
0: So if you were... If you left the country, because you sort of saw the writing on the wall, if you will, with this kind of impending toxic ideology that's now completely um, taken over a lot of our schools, if not most of our schools, and we'll get into that in a second. Why go to China and stay in education? Because some people would say, hey, these struggle sessions originated there. Why are you going to China? Right.
1: Well, uh, so the plan was that would be a two-year commitment And then I would transfer, you know, kind of have my choice of places to transfer. And I was going to transfer to the most possibly remote place that I could. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I figured, you know, I can deal with two years in China. That'd be, I can put up with that to, in the long run, to have my little corner of simplicity, uh, paradise. And China, so China was the first offer. I was like, okay, I can, I've lived, I've lived in the woods before. I can, I can live, uh, in China. I can put up with that for a couple of years. And that'd be, that'd just be a fun and interesting experience in itself. But after, I don't know, five months or so, the, the government said, yeah, we're not granting you the visa. I was kind of, I kind of played the role of political football between the company that I worked with and the local Chinese government. So I got to experience some of that uh, stuff as well. But so I was offered the opportunity to either go back home, which there was no home of uh, sold my house and sold my cars and most of my stuff and put a few things in storage, there was really no plan ever of coming back to live, live. Either do come back to the United States or transfer to Benin, Africa. And I instantly chose Benin. I knew that was one of the kind of isolated, small places uh, that would be good. And I got to see the sun every day. Uh, living in China where I was for those five months or so, there was never more of uh, three days straight of seeing the sunshine. You know, Benin is a very tiny West African country uh, between Nigeria and Togo, and I was uh, right there in in Cotonou, which is a, a coastal city. Uh, in fact, it was so the beaches there were part of the original slave trade. So that's where those waters are and we used to go to the uh, beach every sunday and it's not like they were pretty beaches uh, or safe as far as just the water and the currents the uh, very dangerous waters there so it's not not a playful really beach but we did go there every sunday and i would think about how that beach uh just the awful stories uh, that took place on those ships and just how that impacted our world and just our whole human history, you know, was, that was a very profound uh, place. And I would look out and my children were playing with native Benin children. You know, you have these they, they're they not even speaking the same language, but they are playing in the water and having fun. And so I was while watching that take place on the beach, I realized, you know, the the horrible and tragic histories that took place there as well. So my time there was very, you know, it had a it had a profound impact on me uh, for sure. I had I developed a couple of really close relationships, and I ended up leaving that situation. Once again, oddly enough, I was some sort of political football this time between the company I was with and the U.S. Embassy that was there in, in Cotonou. So that situation ended, and lo and behold, I was... I'm obviously back in the in the United States, and
0: so so basically you you could have stayed as a teacher, but you weren't gonna be given the director role
1: uh, yeah, yeah, and which was you know quite a significant change then you know after. Situation in China with the Chinese government, and then the situation with, I guess, the U.S. government, if if you will, uh, with the Benin embassy, and just so many uncertainties. I still, you know, my, my role was still father, uh, and my children at the time were kindergarten, uh, second grade, fourth grade, and fifth grade, so... I made made the decision that it was probably t- time to just come on home, uh, get some consistency, and kind of regroup. Uh, my, I call it my uh, Swiss Family Robinson <laughs> ad- adventure. Pursuing uh, just was not that was not what was meant to be. Uh, but I'm glad that I did pursue that because it i think it was necessary for me to live in China uh to live in Benin and to experience all of that and to also personally experience that you know no matter how far you run and no matter how much you think uh you've got things planned out it's typically not going to go that way and it's how you respond to those things that makes all the difference in the world.
0: Okay so you, you pack up your family things there were some good lessons learned but things didn't turn out totally how you thought they they would you go back to America what's next?
1: Um well one of the so before I left Benin I had you know and I realized, Hey, I'm, I'm moving back. Um, this, you know, it just didn't pan out, blah, blah, blah. I took a moment and I said, okay, you know, I did the thing where I talked to myself in the mirror, (laughs) just kind of like, all right, Jason, what do you, what do you want to do now? I mean, because I stepped away from public school leadership, uh, I was to pursue, an international career. Now I was forced to, I don't want to use the word reinvent, but, you know, do something else again. And, and this time I had the whole kind of world as my choice and what do I want to do? So Mm -hmm. I just kind of listed out, you know, a few things. I said, I want to work in this, you know, a specific type of environment with specific type of people doing a specific type of work, you know, just basically listed out my utopia of yeah. professional endeavor. And so I end up coming back. I spend a year in the, in the classroom, uh, just trying to get resettled in the country and get back on, back on her feet that way. Cause that's, That's quite a process, and then in 2014, the following year, I became a social and emotional learning specialist in Austin.
0: Was that a certificate or something that you had to get first? uh,
1: No, 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 no certificate. Uh, I just had the professional background, I guess, that qualified me for the job, and it was something something new. And it was one of those things that I felt was missing from public education. So I was, I was excited about, I was like, Oh, this seems pretty, pretty cool and interesting and, and much needed, you know, because in a free society, we have to learn to manage ourselves and to Cultivate relationships and do all of those things. So I felt like I'd kind of landed in, in the work in, in that spot of that vision that I laid out in Benin um, more than a year earlier. So I thought that was uh, quite interesting.
0: But then that's not what you're doing anymore today. So what, what happened?
1: Well, uh, you see what it, what it happened (laughs) was around 2017, uh, 2018, and even kind of creeping up to there, some of the trainings that my working group started to attend, um, became mandatory for all of us. And that was, you know, what's happening now with DEI and even SEL that white, white people are oppressors and, uh, POC are oppressed and just that whole framework. And,
0: are you, did you say that those trainings were offered before, but they were just optional and so then the switch was that they became mandatory?
1: Yes, yes, they uh, oh and that that's really what's interesting is because I saw this whole process unfold uh, because from 2014 to 2017, my working group was the and and environment was the best working environment and working team that I've really ever been a part of. And over time, some of them would go to some of these trainings, and what it, had what it happened was around 2017, 2018, somewhere in there, I would say about half of my team participated in an equity cohort, which meant they went to equity DEI-based trainings and conversations that the rest of us didn't. So they acquired a different set of knowledge than And these what?
0: were people that just volunteered to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Was there any and kind of racial breakdown? Like, was it a good mix of your... Colleagues that went, or was it like all the minorities went to this, and the white folks weren't really encouraged to go, or what? What was the dynamic? It was it was a good blend. Um,
1: I know okay. for sure, two two black people, uh, but at the time that was the only that was the only two on the team, and I remember at the whenever there was a first the first kind of flare up about it we were in a in a meeting and one of uh one of my teammates and my one of my actual best friends i remember he said well y'all just aren't woke and somebody said well what does that mean and since then and I immediately pushed back uh, and questioned because I understood it was that this was just a political philosophy and that it was not having any impact uh, on our social, emotional well-being. And in fact, um, applying this ideological approach to solving the problems that we as professionals claim to be wanting to solve is actually making those things worse.
0: Why, why do you so, think you were able to see just common sense or because so many people who've come on the show or written for the journal or just that we've interacted with at Free Black Thought, they didn't realize things you're kind of ahead of the curve in a sense in terms of people who were sounding the alarm on, on the woke stuff, on the critical theory stuff. um, A lot of people didn't really see the light on that until 2020 um, and beyond Mm. when their schools started really going hard on it, but this is all happening before 2020 for you where you're starting to push back. I'm not saying, I think a lot of schools were implementing this kind of stuff far before 2020, but people just didn't, for whatever reason, really smart people didn't see the problem with it until 2020. And funny, there's a second wave of that happening now with October 7th and what happened in Israel. More people are even being woken up. So it's like, it's almost like people need to be punched in the face before they understand that this stuff is harmful. But that wasn't really the case for you. You knew before you got punched in the face.
1: I, I, yes, I, I definitely knew. Well, one thing is that my undergrad was in history and my focal point was society and culture. So I came into contact with the the Frankfurt School scholars in the mid-90s when I was in, you know, as a college student. So I understood how culture... Uh, has been and could be used or essentially weaponized. Can like you tell I people what, the, what
0: the Frankfurt School is, for those who may not know?
1: Those are uh, Max Horkheimer, Marcuse, Marcuse, and a lot of the essentially neo-Marxist scholars that were kind of frustrated with why didn't revolution happen in, in Germany? Uh, why wasn't there a unified proletariat uh, Bolshevik revolution? So they figured out that maybe it's not about ch- changing things through force, but changing things through the, the culture
0: Right. And they,
1: one of the things was, you know, this, the extreme identity politics that we have now was a Frankfurt School idea. Uh, Solving complex issues with critical theory, that is a Frankfurt School idea. So,
0: So Frankfurt School is a school of thought in sociology, Mm -hmm. critical philosophy, um, where you, apply Marxism basically to interdisciplinary social theories and then that that manifests and, in the and, culture.
1: And nowadays somehow they're con- they're considered uh I guess either conspiracy theory theorist or anti Semitic when you talk about them, but I just understand their Words and their ideas, and understand that that's the way that society is organizing itself and institutionalizing itself right now. And doing so is actually impairing our psychological, our social, emotional well being. You know, rather.
0: Would Frankfurt School be a synonym, basically, for critical theory?
1: Uh, that would be basically the think tank that it came out of. Mm -hmm. That would be a good way to, to explain it.
0: Okay. Okay. So you, you kind of cut you off there. there, I apologize. You, you, you know, this because of your studies of history, you're raising, Mm -hmm. raising a flag. Uh yeah. And did people, because most people, like I said, haven't been punched in the face with this stuff, just kind of laugh at you and say, Oh, Jason, you silly guy.
1: Uh when I first questioned it uh with my SEL team or yeah. Yep. hmm Oh I remember the first time I sat down with somebody to discuss this, i they yelled at me three times
0: Was this a friend somebody who was previously like I mean a colleague but a friend?
1: Yes, both. Mm-hmm. Both, but yelled at me three times and told told me that I needed counseling twice.
0: Simply because you questioned. All you did was say, "Hey, yes. I don't know that this is the way we want to be moving."
1: Yes. And mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh, wow." That was that was really weird, and at the at the time, that was around the time that I f- first learned about the N- the evergreen situation.
0: Yep, yep. My with, home
1: state. Uh, say it again.
0: I said my home state <laughs> of Washington. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So at the time, uh, Brett Weinstein was the only person that I knew of that was experiencing something like I was experiencing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, his was a lot more extreme, but this is the way that... So I I was treated that way in, in my working group for the next, I'll say, three years. Oh because my gosh, so you
0: stayed for three years and you were just people... So you didn't get, like, fired for your viewpoints. You didn't get canceled for your viewpoints. But it just became... Would, Whenever you brought up your concerns, people would yell at you? Uh,
1: let, me, let me ask you this. Maybe I did get canceled for my viewpoints. Or I got... Let's call it... Uh, quietly canceled. Or there'll be another term for this, but... So, around 2021, my job description of SEL specialist went away. And also the jobs of the culturally responsive and inclusion specialist, those jobs went away, and a new job was created that combined some of those responsibilities. And within that job description, it essentially included advancing this new ideological approach. And we were all guaranteed our jobs back, but because it was a a new job, we had to technically uh, apply. So I was kind of faced with this, Oh man. Dude, cuz now I can't question it because I would question it every every chance that I get because I I thought surely we can will be able to discuss this and talk about this and I remember the the final thing that I said I said, uh, ultimately, this movement is a rejection of human dignity and the basic ideas of the Enlightenment. And one of my colleagues responded to me, "Well, it it sounds like you want to go a different direction than we are." I was, I said, "Well, I said, I, yeah, I I guess so because I." am looking for ways to strengthen our well-being strengthen our interconnectedness uh, tear down these walls between us not build them up and drive division and drive the mental health crisis i do want to do something different so i chose not to apply and to Cross my fingers and hope for the best.
0: So in in the meantime, between when you first were kind of like, oh boy, I don't like the sounds of this. And you started pushing back to when those new jobs were created and you chose not to reapply or not to apply. What were some of the ways that your SEL team was implementing critical theory?
1: Primarily through the trainings that we were providing.
0: And this was to students and teachers or just teachers, just students who were always getting these trainings?
1: Primarily teachers, but pockets of students. And I, I was also receiving these trainings and part of an, a special equity cohort And the only thing I remember about that, it was a group we met once a month, and we were supposed to be doing something for students. But I know that we talked more about how racist Thomas Jefferson and Elvis Presley were than we did talking about uh, students.
0: So once once all this training started to happen consistently – Were teachers, I mean, what did you see change at the school? Like in the ways that teachers started teaching, you know, the teachers were getting this training and then I'm assuming they were passing it along to their students in some way. Did you see any changes? Even if it's just like different posters started to go up or different books started to get removed from the curricula because they were quote unquote racist or whatever. We couldn't talk about Thomas Jefferson anymore or what? I don't know. Do you know of any of those examples?
1: uh the biggest and broadest and most impactful example was a teach- teaching styles that were basically the bigotry of low expectations mm-hmm. uh of not of white teachers not holding quote unquote POC students accountable for their missteps and misbehaviors Mm -hmm. like they would a typical white student Uh, making making allowances for misbehavior not properly addressing that making allowances for not Completing assignments. Um, So I I also saw how what we were doing essentially weaponizes compassion and weaponizes Mm -hmm. what's best within us, Mm -hmm. and it's doing it for this collectivist political goal rather than what's best for human beings and human relations. So I started, that's when I started working on Empowered Humanity Theory. And because I was hoping to, that my team there in Austin would be the organization that really starts pushing out this human-centered, and neurological-centered framework for well-being, uh, but that that didn't happen.
0: Were you working on Empowered Humanity Theory before you actually decided to leave, or was that not until after?
1: Oh, yes. I, I started working, you know, it, it started coming together first in 2017.
0: Okay, okay
1: yeah cuz i that th- that's when i first really saw that this new ideological approach had completely taken over you know not just the field of education but professional development and the way that people were talking about Racism and the way that people were talking about social emotional health had all been weaponized by this ideological approach. And I I knew that one day there's going to be a mass awareness of people realizing that, oh, my goodness, we've been putting forth these awful ideas with good intentions, but they're still awful ideas and they're really having a negative impact on our organization, what do we do? I wanted to be there to provide a service to those schools and those organizations to shift gears uh, and really put forth an idea and attitudes and practices that cultivate what's inherently good within all people and mitigate those barbaric tendencies that are unfortunately also within all people.
0: So uh, since you had started working on this in 2017, did you actually shop it around to your group and show it to them um, before you left or was it not kind of finalized? You didn't have your final draft sort of created yet. And so they didn't get to see it.
1: I didn't have it fully articulated Mm -hmm. the way that I do now, but I would say it was five-eighths of the way of being fully articulated. Uh, The ideas were present enough, but that's the thing. I, I never... In three years of questioning, and just and the questioning essentially was, hey, we should all sit down and have a conversation about our approach, our mm-hmm. approaches to our our work. You know, as professionals, we need to examine examine this and examine our world through that social, emotional, uh, apolitical lens. And that never, that never happened. But that was the conversation, because I wanted to fully say, look, and, and have a conversation around it. But there was such... One person told me, that's easy for you to say because you're a, a white man. And this was a, a white female that that said that and what what made everything i guess really funny odd and interesting in the workplace is that my my buddy Alonzo who was my best friend was also the only black male on the team and after he you know he and i would have conversations about you know, hey, let's, so after we would have conversations, then he realized that, yeah, this is not really, really the best uh, thing in the world, but it was odd because my colleagues knew that I had a close personal and even spiritual relationship with the only black male on the, on the working group, but somehow I was this awful person <laughs> um, mm. that harmed people. I, I was told when I left that my ideas harmed people. Um, but yeah, that's that was that, and it was really. I, I'm 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 glad I got to experience it, uh, mainly because I know that that's happened to so many. People And so many working groups. And that's why I would like to stop the spread of that happening.
0: So when you, when you exited that position, were you like, okay, now I'm going to go into consulting. Had you created Empowered Pathways website yet? Had you done any of that? Or were you just like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to fast track this.
1: So I started Empowered Pathways in May of 2017. Okay. And had been doing it as, I guess, quote, unquote, my side job for a few years and providing consulting to districts and professional development. So I'd been doing that in my non- nine-to-five job so I was putting out this idea into the world and I was sharing it outside of my nine-to-five while in my nine-to-five this idea was rejected and I was being hated and bullied for it so that was uh quite an interesting process to go through
0: can you talk about the connection between SEL and DEI? Like, is it possible? Are there people doing SEL without it being intertwined with DEI? Or are they now just inherently buddies now? And where you see one, you always see the other one typically?
1: I can't honestly and accurately answer that question. But what my my gut tells me is that Most, quote-unquote, SEL, how it's being done now, is through that critical social justice lens. Uh, Because that is the lens and framework that CASEL, which is the national SEL organization, that's the approach that they took. So just just like my local team really like officially made that switch around 2001, Castle's definition of SEL changed in December of 2020. So most likely the types of social emotional learning programs and platforms out there right now are rooted in the collectivist political philosophy as its basis rather than, okay, how do we make things better for people and their relationships as their basis?
0: Okay. Well, how is empowered humanity theory different? Tell us about it. What's, what is the different approach you're taking? And then explain to like empowered pathways versus empowered humanity theory. So if people want to look you up and see the type of work you're doing, they know which ones, what does pathways mean? What does empowered humanity theory mean?
1: Sure thing. Uh, So empowered pathways is the name of my 501c3. And I named it that the pathways there is a reference to the the neuropathways in our in our brain. Mm-hmm. And empowered humanity theory is the overall idea that I have. It's a collection of three attitudes and three pathways of practice that should a person intentionally and frequently engage in these specific uh, pathways of practice and develop these specific attitudes, they will develop the neuropathways of personal empowerment. Uh, And to kind of touch on that, because I look at the work of Richie Davidson, who is the director for the Center for Healthy Minds, And his team has identified four neuroscientifically validated constituents of well-being in the brain. And they are resilience, uh, outlook, mainly a positive outlook, attention, and generosity. And what I noticed is that whenever people engage in contemporary DEI practices, they are engaging in practices that do not strengthen those areas of the brain. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that's contributing to the mental health crisis. That's how I kind of have pinpointed, hey, a major source of our mental health crisis is just this basic way we are approaching life and each other so empowered humanity theory is the practices that actually strengthen the resilience constituent the outlook attention and generosity
0: what are some of those methods i mean you you've also written a book so feel free to, to plug that and you know people can buy your book read it and learn more about to implement this into their life but can you give us the the spark notes
1: sure thing so one of the first attitude that i talk about developing is a valued centered identity you know reject this notion of i am who i am based off of my skin color my sex the way that I pursue romantic love, et cetera, cetera, the way I vote, et cetera, et cetera. I am who I am based off of my chosen core values. So have, you know, one to 10 uh, core values that, that guide the way that you think about yourself, the way that you think about the people you encounter, and the, The values that guide your behavior so really be who you are based off of your values and I really leaned into that during my last few years as an SEL specialist because my values were dignity integrity and humor and when things got really difficult you know it was integrity that allowed me to speak up and it was dignity that allowed me to excuse myself from situations to where my dignity was being violated and by keeping the dignity of my teammates in mind prevented me from lashing out or doing things to cause further harm. Leaning into your chosen core values as a as a compass to guide you through this crazy thing called life rather than some assigned stereotype
0: what if your value is that your identity is totally wrapped up in the color of your skin
1: well then i if somebody if somebody told me that i would i would love to ask, you know, what, what does that mean? And if somebody, you know, if somebody has a self-selected core value of, of hate, well, you know, in, in a free world, you are going to have people that self-select hate, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't meet everybody. Uh, You can't prevent human suffering in a in a free in a free world so what we have to do is we have to figure out how do we increase our odds of being successful together and to be able to live as freely as possible together and that i guess is kind of leans into another empowered humanity theory attitude, and that is to see each other through a a dignity lens. You know, the, the social justice world and the United Nations and all of these people talk about dignity and human dignity, but the way that... They push dignity through this ideological lens is, in fact, a dignity violation uh, because when you separate yourself from others, that in itself is a violation of dignity. And then to add to that, whenever you label an individual and an entire group of people either oppressed or oppressors that's also a violation of human dignity mm-hmm. and you know i i talk about dignity in a very specific way and i i do write about this in the in the book as well but to really have a dignity lens and to navigate your daily experience through a dignity lens requires separating uh, the human from the being in that human beings as we are and the human part of us is the culmination of our biologies and personalities you know what What you see, you know, the color of my skin, my sex, uh, my personality, sense of humor, all all of those things, that's our human selves. And as many people there are on this planet, there's that many unique humans. Mm -hmm. And beneath our... Humanity, if you will, is that being part, and all beings across time, space, and cultures share two distinct qualities, and that's the desire to avoid suffering and the willingness and the desire to alleviate the suffering of others when we encounter it. So that empowered humanity theory idea of a dignity lens means seeing people, others, as we see ourselves rather than seeing them as an other and strengthening that connection between us. Um, because whenever we do that, we are actually decreasing the innate human capacities for prejudice, aggression, and cruelty. So by practicing that dignity lens and engaging in practices that celebrate our common humanity, we actually decrease our capacities for prejudice where, and that's the place where racism and sexism and all the isms and bigotries come from. So that's the, you know, that's another way that empowered humanity theory is, is different from what contemporary DEI and social justice does is it prioritizes othering. And whenever humans do that, it strengthens those innate capacities for prejudice, aggression, and cruelty. It strengthens those neural pathways and those neural circuitries. So if contemporary DEI and social justice is really about empowerment and building a dignified world, these contemporary approaches they're not. They're not getting that. They're not meeting that objective.
0: What's the reaction you get as you're shopping this around? Are people normally like, "Oh, I didn't know SEL could be done this way," or do they not buy it? I kind of want to hear what, when people respond positively and negatively, what are why do they respond either way to to your theory?
1: I have three different responses for that. Okay. The first response I'll is from a, a client that I'm currently working with. This client, it's a school district. This client reached out to me in, I think it was the summer of 22. They said, can you come in and do a two-day workshop for our SEL leadership team? Because they like my approach. My approach focuses on the adults and training and equipping the adults. I don't have a package, a prepackaged curriculum that I impose on on children. Um, my approach is to really take care of, of the teachers and give them give them things so anyway I was brought in to do this two-day workshop in 2022 and the morning of the second day my contact came to me and said hey we love this uh, we found some other other budgets can you come back and train the assistant principals counselors and social workers I was like yes absolutely every time I go that go back i get a a different request and for the past year i've been working with a principal and leadership team on really transforming the climate and culture of the school and that principal told me this past summer he said after meeting with them and planning and sharing Empowered Humanity Theory, said that that was the most beneficial time he'd ever spent with a consultant. And I'm still working with that campus and I'm now beginning another project with the same client about using Empowered Humanity Theory as a coaching tool for groups of teachers and individual teachers Addressing the issue of teacher burnout. Mm, okay. So, from a professional standpoint, I'm getting a, a wonderful uh, response because it's, we're now entering the second year of, of working with this client that originally asked me to come in and spend two days. Mm-hmm. But the there's two more responses which have been really, really interesting. And the, the first, I guess I'll talk about from the traditional SEL, the traditional quote-unquote critical social justice group, is to... Describe what I'm doing as white supremacy with a hug. <laughs> I've been told that my ideas are harmful and dangerous by them. I'm the person that got Castle uh, to turn off the comments of their Twitter because I've also been trying to engage with this uh, from a professional, hey, the way that society is organizing itself and institutionalizing itself right now is impairing our social emotional well-being. And if we shift and we are intentional about tamping down these barbaric tendencies that we all have and strengthening what's best within us, and embracing and celebrating our common humanity, then we can get some different results. So they have, they consider me a bad person, but I have had somebody tell me, well, yeah, that's what we want in the end, but, and I'm like, okay, well, when do we when do we start? <laughs> and there was no real answer for that. Um, so that's, an, that's one response is I'm bad and evil.
0: So you kind of get the we're all in, we're going to keep hiring you, we love it, The we hate it, you're a white supremacist, and then what's that third reaction?
1: The other response is from the really strong, devout anti-woke crowd and a lot of the people that are really attached to the quote-unquote right side of politics just like the people that think I'm a bad person are really really attached to the left side of quote-unquote politics so I get the in, in fact there's one there's a fairly large organization that last week decided to run my name through the mud with a series of personal attacks and totally misrepresenting my work but I was like yeah that's an that's an example of how the right and the anti-woke also have rejected this because once I was once I was able to finally I guess come out of the ideological closet where I could speak about things publicly I was like I'll talk to the side that obviously sees there is some sort of ideological takeover of our institutions because my my I guess overall idea is to get empowered humanity theory as an idea out there in the world, uh, while also gracefully exposing how contemporary DEI practices are actually harmful for our well-being. And it's a collectivist political philosophy, first and foremost. And... If you wanna continue to advancing a collectivist political philosophy, then so be it. But I do believe that most people advancing these ideas aren't bad people, aren't trying to intentionally transform the free world, but if it's the tool set that that they're using. So whether the intentions in their heart are there or not, by using the tools of destruction, which is contemporary DEI, and one of the things that I noticed it's destroying, first and foremost, is the psychological well-being of people and the relationships between them. So I don't think that pursuing a collectivist political philosophy at the sake of the psychological well-being of people and the relationships between them is a good idea. And I'm hoping that the majority of the people out there will agree to that and try to change the ideas that are currently being put forth in their workplaces and in their institutions. So that's another, I guess, whole and goal of the book is to provide those people with a resource uh, for conversations and a framework for how to change things because that's the way that change is going to happen is if enough people, I guess, adopt a a shared philosophy because that's one of the things missing in our culture right now is a shared philosophy. We used to have a shared philosophy that individual freedom was first and foremost important. And now there's a large part of the people that believe that that idea is a white supremacist idea. So we no longer as a culture, as a people have a shared common philosophy. So I also wrote empowered humanity theory as a basic, it's essentially a basic philosophical framework that could be a shared philosophy, to kind of get us back on track and the philosophy is hey if we do these things we're going to strengthen the neural pathways that are related to our psychological well-being and we're going to decrease our propensity to do harm to each other based on our differences and we're going to help each other out more in our times of need because all of those things are needed in our culture right now
0: is are those who are kind of on the political right the issue they take with your work is more that they just think sel can't be saved at all
1: yes yes and you know quite honestly i don't openly promote um empowered humanity theory as social emotional learning i just promote it as what it is and that's empowered humanity theory it it just so happens that strengthening these attitudes and engaging in in these practices does help with self-management self-awareness social awareness relationship skills and decision making skills it strengthens those things and It By decreasing the innate capacities for prejudice and by decreasing our judgmental way of thinking, that does decrease racism. I forgot to mention that one of the the third attitude, and that is prioritizing mindsets of inquiry and compassion over mindsets of fear and judgment... Uh, that fear and quick judgment response, that's that primitive brain reacting to something. And, you know, in times of emergencies, uh, we need that fast reaction of fear and judgment. But whenever we approach each other first and foremost, from a lens of fear and judgment that further builds walls of indignity and cultivates mistrust. And contemporary DEI and social justice, it prioritizes our thinking to be based in fear and judgment. Uh, But I find using inquiry... Being curious with a situation or a person, again, whenever your physical safety isn't threatened, but approaching those things with curiosity and even compassion, uh, we can be a lot more productive in our problem solving.
0: I my hesitation, I guess, is actually with not SEL necessarily or anything, but with empowered humanity theory. And I wonder if you ever get this pushback as just like a classical Christian is that I actually don't believe that humans are innately good um, and that they, you know, our two desires are just to, to, to prevent suffering in ourselves and to prevent suffering in other people, maybe our immediate family. Yes, but other people who are outside of my bloodline, not so much. That's my perspective. Uh, so what would you say to someone like me who, who brings that kind of pushback?
1: Tell me the the first part of what you said again.
0: I don't believe that humans are inherently good. I- okay,
1: yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. Well, I would I would clarify by saying that all my overall message is that it isn't all people are inherently good. It's that all people inherently have the capacity for compassion and understanding and recognizing somebody as they would recognize themselves. So they have these good qualities in them. And we also have the innate capacities for prejudice, aggression, and cruelty within us. And the, the more that we, whichever ones we practice is what we become and every single waking moment we are practicing variety of attitudes and practices knowingly or unknowingly and essentially what i'm promoting is the more that we practice and are intentional about doing the things that strengthen the the best qualities in us Odds are we are going to have a more productive, happy, and healthy life. Mm-hmm. And I would also say that if you look if you look at the attitudes and practices of empowered humanity theory closely, you'll notice some elements uh that may register with your Christian belief. Um uh, whenever a lot of the reaction and response I've given when I've talked, people will come up to me afterwards and kind of whisper like, Hey, are you a Christian? (laughs) Uh, I've heard, Hey, are you, are you a Buddhist? Uh, I've had some like, Hey, have you heard of cognitive based therapy? So really what I'm promoting is just the simple idea of, Hey, if we will do the things that strengthen what's best within us and be intentional about mitigating those barbaric tendencies that were beneficial to humans thousands of years ago, but now in the modern world, we don't need to approach each other as... Tribal enemies, because humans have a history of whenever they do that uh, awful awful things happen
0: okay, fair enough, fair enough so i I gotta ask you how did this all link you up with free black thought where did where did this work how did this work end you talking to me right now and us being uh being colleagues
1: That's a wonderful question uh I guess Darren. It all started <laughs> during the pandy. Yeah. <laughs> the pandy. <laughs> uh, I, I used that time to intentionally start seeking pe- people out and, like, hey, is anybody else seeing this, going through this? And. I got a a message from on on Twitter. We just communicated on Twitter. They're like, "Hey, we you know we appreciate what you're doing. Uh, would you like let's let's set up a time to visit?" So we sat up a we had a Zoom and set up a time to visit, and I'm gonna do some collaboration or something. Then the at the next meeting. They said, "Hey, we all, you know, after our, our last visit, we had a had a meeting and wanted to invite you to be one of the one of our co founders." I was like, "Hell yeah! let you know, let's let's do this." So it was essentially the empowered humanity theory idea that uh, linked me up with FBT.
0: The rest is history, as they say.
1: The rest is history, as they say, yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I I saw it as, this is an organization that I can put forth my passion and talent into the the cause that's most important to me right now.
0: So if somebody's listening to this and they're really interested in your work, what kind of services do you offer? Is it just school districts that you want to work with or maybe companies who need help with this kind of stuff who and what is this actually for and applicable to
1: school districts uh and or companies it's applicable to any school that has to check an sel box that has to check an anti-racism box uh, that has to check a dei box so, any if you have to check one of those boxes, but would like to do so from a framework that is rooted in human solutions rather than the in vogue collectivist political philosophy, that's that's who. Uh, also, if there are. Schools or organizations that don't necessarily have to check any of these boxes, but are looking to increase the, I guess, quote unquote, positivity of their climate and culture. Uh, Like I said, I'm working with one client on the issue of teacher burnout. So stress management type stuff, team building Type stuff, ways to uh, bring companies together around that organization's uh, shared value. Mm-hmm. because what what I know is that anytime there's more than two people in a room, there's a diverse group formed. And the more people that are added to that room or group, And the longer that group spends with each other, the likelihood for conflict increases. So by having a shared philosophy and working under a shared set of values, uh, companies and organizations and schools actually will mitigate the amount of harm that's done and the intensity and severity of the harm as well. So just really uh, those groups that want to increase, you know, their, their working group relationships, the working group environment, all of, all of that stuff.
0: Do you think, and this is going to be my final question before we get into the speed round and then you'll be able to share your final thoughts. But before that, Do you think that there's kind of a quiet majority that sort of supports and want to implement the kind of work that you're doing? Or do you think it's really an uphill battle and there's still a lot of work to be done just to change minds?
1: I think there's a silent majority out there. And I think any minute... uh, I'm I'm crossing my fingers and hoping that any minute uh, the, the dam will burst. And it will be commonly known that what is happening in our culture right now is not a continuation of the ideals of the 50s and 60s civil rights movement, the abolition movement, and every movement for human rights in the past. In fact, this is a rejection of that, and the the majority of the places that it's coming into our society is through social emotional learning mm-hmm. is through DEI and is through anti racism so if we can get empowered humanity theory in those three institutional areas we will begin to change things because we are changing the the ways that people think about themselves and about each other and interact with each other so that's my overall hope and vision is to be able to do that Uh, i don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime but I think eventually people will want to work together, that people will want to preserve liberty, and people will want to tear down these walls between us. It's, if that's the want to, then we have to use a different uh, tool set, and I'm hoping that the silent majority that believe that as well will use this moment to join me and pick up a hammer and let's tear down this wall.
0: (laughs) And if you're a parent listening to this and you're in, you know, you might not even know whether SEL tactics or curricula or whatever is being implemented in your school. But if you do, you should look into it. You should see what kinds of things that they're teaching and know that you're not you're not helpless, right? A parent can petition their school district to, "Hey, let's try empowered humanity theory to quote check this box." You know, as you were saying earlier, instead. And so, I hope um, parents too can feel a little bit empowered and not just feel feel helpless. Like, well, my school district already pricked this, you know, SEL curriculum, so I guess we're doomed. You're not doomed. It's never too late to change. So, uh, check out Jason's work.
1: <laughs> and if you don't have a A proposed solution, this is one of the things I learned as being a school administrator, you know, because people come to you with complaints all the time. But if you don't have a specific complaint and a specific solution, you're not going to be heard. So I am a specific solution Mm -hmm. to the problem that the anti SEL lobby hates and that's that's the other group that really can't stand what I'm doing is those that are the, that are the strongest and the most vocal about how awful SEL is and I'm like yes that's why we have to get better ideas into our institutions. I mean, that's, that's how people have changed the world over time is that we have just started using better ideas.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. So that's a good, good stopping point before we get into our quick fire uh, speed round questions. And then after this, uh, Jason, you'll be given the floor once more to give us your final thoughts. Might want to plug your book there a little bit too. um, And then we'll close it out. Are you ready for your speed round? I'm ready. Okay. Number one, what is the tastiest style of cheese?
1: The tastiest style of cheese? Yeah.
0: Type of cheese.
1: Oh my God. (laughs) See, cheese is my love language. So this is going to be a really difficult question. Sometimes (laughs) I need a funky, nasty gorgonzola. Sometimes I need a sweet brie, a sharp cheddar. I, 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 uh, as a non-binary cheese lover, I can't accurately (laughs) answer that question.
0: But that's one of the best (laughs) answers we've ever gotten. Okay. Do you celebrate Juneteenth?
1: I do, actually. And I think, so I celebrate it more as a Texan holiday and what, what a... What a cool and unique uh, thing about Texas and being being a free Texan. Yeah. Uh, so, but now it's become you know it's more of a national thing. So, but yeah, I've always associated it with a, with a special as a special Texas holiday.
0: Mm-hmm. How many times have you been in love?
1: Oh. Maybe zero. Ooh,
0: that's sad. <laughs> uh, Maybe
1: one and perhaps two. <laughs> I, don't really, I don't really know. Currently, I am uh, without that situation, but I do have a wonderful dog.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Is it racist to seek out a black person to befriend so that you can have a black friend?
1: If the intention is to so I can have a black friend, yes.
0: Even if you just are like, my my group is very, uh, it doesn't have a lot of diversity in it. And so I know, you know, I'll be better off if I have more diversity around me. Still racist.
1: If you have that attitude and... I guess as you are going to concerts or sport, whatever events and things you like, and you're like, okay, so this dude, I've I've never meticulously sought people out. Maybe that explains that love question
0: too.
1: <laughs> hmm. uh, I don't know, but if if you're, I think if you're like. I need a black friend and I'm going to choose you and you don't really click. Uh, Yeah, that's weird.
0: Do you think you could kill a person in self-defense? Yes. Who is the most underrated black intellectual?
1: Eric Smith.
0: Aw, that's our president, guys. President of BT. Yep. Is cultural appropriation a good or bad thing?
1: I'm gonna say I'm gonna say both. If it's done as a mockery, that is bad. If it is done to enhance or to create something new, I think it's wonderful. Uh, for the example, the combination of ethiopian and texas yeah. barbecue
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: you know really using aspects of culture to honor people that's that's not that's not a bad thing at all
0: is naming a sports team the redskins wrong no mlk or malcolm x mlk is kneeling during the national anthem an appropriate form of protest?
1: Mm. I I don't like it, but I'm going to say it's an appropriate form of protest.
0: Alrighty, fair enough. That was your tenth question. Uh, do you have final thoughts, things you want to plug, anything you need to get off your chest that you didn't get to say during uh, during this conversation?
1: I'll make one more uh, plug for the book and I guess my overall services as well. Um, the book is Empowered Humanity Theory, a Framework for an Empowering and Dignified Life, and it's on Amazon. And I've, I've written the book in a way that it Essentially, the idea of Empowered Humanity Theory, uh, I share about my personal story. I've asked Diana Bloom, uh, who is a board-certified neurologist and practicing physician, to write the foreword for the book because she, as a neurologist and grandchild of Holocaust survivors, she understands how my work is actually addressing the mental health crisis and disrupting the ideological practices that are being put forth in our institutions. So I've written it in a way that it can be read in 45 minutes to an hour, uh, but I've also included about 100 different exercises and practices and meditations to actually be like, okay, so now what do I do? So the book's meant to be an easy read about, okay, I get the overall idea of empowered humanity theory and how I can incorporate it into my life. But there's also a lot of different specific practices for specific times. Uh, And more, more than half of the book is those different exercises that people can actually engage in to do some of these things.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for coming on. It's been a great conversation. I hope people check out uh, your website. It'll be linked in the show notes, of course, and also links to your book. Um, and I just encourage people to check it out and just be aware of what's going on at your own child's school, because some of the stuff that we've talked about that we think is toxic and harmful... Might be in your school, might be in your school district, and you don't even realize it. Especially if you just hear social emotional learning, that sounds great, uh, and you don't and you don't investigate further. So I'd encourage you to investigate further. And if there is a problem, call up Jason. <laughs>
1: right on. Thank you.
0: Yep. See you on the next uh, Free Black Thought email thread.
1: All right. Take That's care, funny. Connie. <laughs> You're listening to the Free Black Thought podcast. <laughs>